Thomas Lynch is a funeral director in small-town America, Milford, Michigan, but he also happens to be an award-winning writer, poet, and essayist, usually talking about death so that those of us who are still alive might read it and ponder our own mortality. In one of those essays, Lynch tells the story of Mrs. Robertson's passing and her funeral. She had been uh, preceded by her husband some five years earlier and widowed, and, and Lynch tells about meeting their son, Alistair, who was in his 50s and retired early from Ford so that he might take care of his mom in her last days, get her to the doctor, make sure she was taking her meds, that kind of thing. And then came the phone call in the middle of the night from Alistair that his mom had passed. And so Lynch and his son drove out to the house. Alistair had put on a fresh pot of coffee, had jotted down some notes for the obituary. He handed over the dress, the pearls, the shoes, and the Bible that she would be buried in and with. And then for the next couple of nights, the funeral home had people come through paying their respects, and then they went out to the church service the next day, and then after that to the West Highland Cemetery, where after a reading of the psalm, a minister threw dirt on a coffin and said, dust to dust, and everyone went back home, which is pretty much how all our stories end at a funeral except this one in Luke 7. It's the exact opposite on at least two counts. Instead of a son bearing his widowed mother in the text, it's a widowed mother bearing her son, which is not the natural order of things. Parents aren't supposed to bury their kids. We know that, but it happens. Years ago, I remember serving at a church where this couple in their 50s at the time would constantly relive how their 20-something-year-old daughter had been killed by a drunk driver many years, many years before, but they would not and could not let it go. They were, and I think still are, devastated. This is not the natural order of things. And it's also not the natural order of things because whereas all our stories end at a funeral, this one starts at a funeral and has a pretty interesting little twist. You heard it, Jesus and his disciples in this crowd, they traveled to a place called Nain, which is Greek for pleasant, only it's not very pleasant. They encounter a funeral procession, this poor widowed mother bearing her only son. Whatever times they'd had in the mornings with coffee and waffles, dreaming and talking, what are you doing today? No more. Whatever hope she had that he might settle down and have kids and give her grandkids, that was no longer in the cards. Don't know what happened to him. Myocardial infarction, I don't know. Stroke, blood clot, cancer, pneumonia, we don't know. But this much she knew, he was gone. So maybe she picked out a song and maybe a passage of scripture to read. Actually, in the first century, the funeral protocols were somewhat like ours and somewhat different, as you might expect. The dead would be buried, if they could afford it, in a sarcophagus or more likely in a tomb, which was really just a carved-out kind of cave in a rock. 
the body would be buried the same day of death because they really didn't have the embalming and the heat was bad. So they would wash the body and anoint it with some spices. And then after the funeral, this sounds very familiar, after the funeral, they'd make their way back to the house for a meal and condolences. Sounds pretty typical, doesn't it? Except this one gets interrupted. Jesus stops the funeral procession, and Luke says he was moved with compassion. That word means he, he felt it in his gut. It tore him up inside to see this mother burying her only son. So he says, don't weep, which would have been an incredibly cruel thing to say, except he knows what he's about to do. And he says to the man, rise. And he, and he sits up. <laughs> this is not exactly what one expects at a funeral. It is not the natural order. Some of you will remember I told this story a couple years ago. It's this great book called Einstein's Dreams. And the author tells the true life story of Einstein when he was a young man toiling with the theory of relativity. How exactly does time work? But then the author takes some liberty and imagines the kinds of dreams that Einstein's started having. The kind of waking him up in a cold sweat because he's imagining, well, in the dream world, a different way of time flowing. Like there's this one on June the 2nd, 1905, Einstein drifts off to sleep and the dream begins like this. A mushy brown peach is taken out of the garbage, put on the kitchen table where it starts to pinken and harden. It's put in a sack, it's taken back to the grocers, put on a shelf, put in a crate, taken to an orchard, put on a tree, and then blossoms start to appear. The dream closes like this. A woman throws a handful of dirt on the coffin of her husband, but she does not cry. She feels the cold April rain. She feels the insult of death, but she does not cry because she remembers how in just another day or two, he'll sit up in that hospital bed, start to walk the halls even. He'll check out, go home. He'll start to feel better. They'll go for walks. They'll make love. They'll go see a movie. They'll go out to eat. She doesn't cry because she remembers a day in the future when he is alive. A world where time flows backwards. We seem to have stumbled upon that here. Not too long ago at the church, we, we redid, we revised this little funeral booklet that we give to people who are planning for a funeral. And, and it's a very nice little booklet, and it, it has um, hymns that you might think about using and scripture passages, and then a list of frequently asked questions in the back like oh, how will the bulletin get done and can the service be recorded those kinds of questions but trust me there is not one in there that says and if my deceased is suddenly raised from the dead what do we do then <laughs> we we don't address that but maybe maybe we should I mean given this story in the gospel and given the promise of Easter that the God who raised Jesus promises to raise us up as well. There's an interesting footnote in the funeral protocols in the first century. So they're going out of the city, out to the gate, and they're going out to bury this, this young man. In the first century, if a funeral procession ran into a wedding procession, the funeral yielded. Isn't that interesting? 
You, you remember when people used to actually stop for funeral processions without a motorcycle cop telling you to? They would stop. It was respect for the dead. And they respected the dead, but they decided in the first century, and this is our Judeo-Christian tradition, that the funeral would honor the wedding because life wins out over death. I just love that image. In that very same essay, Lynch says that after everyone left the graveside, Alistair, 50-something, now with no mother, said, so what's next? And Lynch said he wasn't sure exactly what he was asking. I mean, people ask funeral directors and clergy all kinds of things. He, he couldn't decide. Was this the big question? You know, like, so what's next? What, what's happened to my mom? Is she now with God? Is she reunited with her husband? Or was this more the medium question, like, what do I do now? I'm 50-something, my mom's gone, I've retired. Or, or was this just the ordinary one, like, you know, so do we go back to the house now for tea and cakes? It seems to me that with what happens in Luke 7, the first two questions get wiped off the table. And we're left with the ordinary one of, so what do we do? the rest of the day now that you're back from the dead. <laughs> I mean, the gospel moves on, right? It just keeps moving. If you were reading through Luke chapter 7, it just keeps moving on, but you got to wonder. I mean, I just want to pull the camera back. What is the rest of the day like in the village of Nain? Pleasant, I'm guessing. You know? I, I mean, they had to already have those casserole dishes with people's names taped on the bottom, except I'm guessing they brought more of them green bean casserole, all that stuff. And the whole village had to come. And the mom says, I got to call and cancel that tombstone. And everybody's there, and they're, they're feasting, and they're, and they're wondering what in the world has happened. It's a party. And eventually everybody clears out. The mom and son, they clean up best they can, sit down for one last glass of wine, maybe a cup of coffee. And he says, you know, there are all these places I wanted to go, like the Grand Canyon, the pyramids, and maybe see those northern lights. Of course, she's got her fingers crossed that he'll still get married and have a kid. She wants a grandchild. What do you do when you've been raised from the dead? I mean, I could ask you that. What, what, did, what did you do? What will you do the next time you're raised from the dead? See, on the verge of another Lenten journey, the destination is resurrection. When Jesus says, rise, and suddenly it's like, well, okay, what, what, what do we do now? I know this is speculation, but as the scene moves on and the camera comes back, I, I just sort of picture them sitting there, and I don't know what the future holds, but I hope that if the man does settle down and start a family, give that woman a grandchild, I hope it's a girl. Nothing against the boys, but I have a perfect name for a girl, Anastasia. Isn't that a beautiful name, Anastasia? You know any Anastasias? Anastasia. It's Greek for resurrection. Anastasia. Is that a great name or what?